hardcore shows across random spots on Long Island to carrying a Tengu shrine deep in the mountains of Japan. He's the most well-traveled friend, one of the most caring and sincere people I know. His encouragement was paramount and urged me to make one of the best choices in my life. I would like to welcome a hero I call by their first name, Frank. I appreciate that, man. Everything's good, dude. Super psyched to be here. Super psyched to uh, to have one of these, you know, these longer conversations that we've had in recent years recorded and out there mm -hmm. for the, to share with the world. So thank you for yeah. having me. Yeah. yeah, man. That's a really good point, man. We definitely have had, you know, tons of it's tons of conversations over the over the past few years, man. And, um, and that's kind of inspired me to do this because, you know, this is how, you know, li living so far away, um, this is how I usually connect with friends is like, you know, through an hour or two hour chat over some, you know, whether it's Facebook or, you know, Zoom or whatever. And it's, it's like a mini, almost like a mini, you know, like interview type of things. Like what, what, what have you, what have you been up to for the past six months? Yep. It's like, you know, what have you, how, how have you grown? What have you realized? And, uh, yeah. So I was like, you know what? Yeah. It'd be good to, to, to like, you know, record these and, you know, uh, you know, share them with, with people. And then, you know, as you and I, uh, both, uh, you know, our, our, our day jobs, I guess, uh, is, you know, this, this, this la te teaching language, right. Teaching, yep. uh, English to speakers of different languages. So, yep. I uh, figure, yeah, try to combine the two yeah, and man. see what happens, man. But yeah, thanks, dude. It's dope. And I have to say that even, listen, like I said, listening to the, the one, the, the episode with Chris thus far, um, you know, it's it this whole, the vibe of it is very similar to, I think, listening to some early Reformation stuff. I think there's, just, <laughs> there's no, there's a sincerity to it and there's an honesty to it. And there's like, there's like a warmth to it. You know, there's like, there's a love there. And I feel like, um, you know, as we get older, it's like we're not as proactive as finding new music and we're all getting mm -hmm. into like talk radio and podcasts and all this <laughs> stuff. So this is just like the next evolution of putting something sincere out there, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think about that. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, yeah, man. Getting older, man. That, that <laughs> seems to be the theme of, of, it's the, real. of a lot of Yeah, it's real. It's, it's happening. Real. Yeah, no question. Yeah, awesome, man. Yeah. So. So yeah, dude. Um, yeah, as you know, uh, yeah, this podcast is you know uh, kind of as you know kind of aimed at being a resource for teachers or learners uh, who want to just hear people just you know shooting the shit, you know. Um, yep. And um, you know, uh, so yeah, th thank you for for you know giving your time to do this and everything. Um, um, but yeah, man. So you know, if you don't mind, um, you know, if we can kind of go back, hit rewind, and go back in time um, to when. We we first met. Yeah, um, yeah I, I was just thinking about it, and I couldn't put a, a, a finger on a particular time on a calendar exactly when it was. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Like, do do you remember like the first time we we kicked it? Yeah. I, it like, and when it, was that? The actual. Yeah. I mean, like you know, April twenty first. Like exactly. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no. But I mean, like. Not that, but it was so the the connection was always through Chris Loverich. Uh, yeah, Chris, yeah. Chris, I knew. Chris and I had this cross country practice together. That's where we met like a few weeks okay. before high school started. And um, he was my first friend in high school. And we used okay. to listen to, uh, you know, punk and hardcore CDs in his, mm -hmm. in his room over in Northport and stuff. And then he, um, you know, he, he was in the band Strong Point. And then mm -hmm. I think Strong Point's last show was the Reformation's first show. Yeah, something um, like that, yeah. So we likely crossed paths at that show. I know I was, mm -hmm. I, I know I was there. Um, but yeah, an exact date was probably sometime in like 90, 
early 2000s, late mm-hmm. 90s at a show. I mean, I saw I saw a kin at Deja One. I remember that. So, I, I mean, we were at shows together. I just don't mm-hmm. know how much we were talking and all that. But, yeah, sometime around the, what is it, the turn of the millennium? 2000, yeah, yeah. 2001-ish, sometime Y2K, remember Y2K, that? Y2K, that's it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> all the computers are going to uh, stop working or whatever was it was. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a real yeah, that was a, that was like climate change back then <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i remember that we were bugging out yeah. man. Yo, the computers there's a there's a flaw in windows that the, the computers can't handle and like yeah. i remember thinking like, really i, was, I don't know yeah. like, if you I think say was, so it was like it was like terminator 2 skynet stuff resident yeah. in real life <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man how times have changed man yeah, it was legit yeah but um all right cool man yeah so what you mentioned like your high school stuff so like what were you doing you know before like we, we met like you know um i know i you know i've learned throughout the years you know just talking as friends but yeah like what 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 got you into hardcore like what um you know because that's you know like uh where we kind of you know our friendship kind of began right was was why are you speaking with your mouth you should be using your mind. So this is the uh, point where my audio uh, was lost. Um, so yeah, for the rest of the conversation, um, I'll be uh, giving some context to uh, the questions that Frank uh, a- uh, answers. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm really sorry about, you know, uh, the loss of audio. Uh, but you know frank shares a lot of interesting uh you know personal uh, stories and a lot of great uh in insight into um yeah about who he is and about travel and education fitness uh language <clears throat> and, you know a lot of a lot of things so i uh, just want to once again uh, you know apologize to, to frank as well uh for you know the uh technical uh issues that led me to lose the audio and um yeah, really appreciate that he took the time out to do this. All right, so here we go. You know, again, I would, I would give most of the credit to Chris in that regard. I mean, he, he had an older brother that was giving him certain tapes and CDs that got him into stuff. And, um, you know, by the first or second year of high school, we started going to shows. I, mean, I had gone to, like, concerts before, like Smashing Pumpkins or something. But, yeah, which was... Which was you know, still, still some of my favorite stuff, but the, um, I don't know, there was something about it. I had traveled really far to go to the high school that I went to. Uh, my father and my mother, my, they were really, really, really big on education. And my father had a few good years in business and all he really wanted to do was roll that money over into sending us to the best possible school, you know, m- myself and my sisters. And um, I went to St. Anthony's, which is where I met Chris. and. It was a bit of a of a hike, and I can't say exactly what kind of attracted me to the first group of friends I had. But I mean, it was partially a cross country team that I started working out with before high school started. We had practices, and some of the kids on that team. One of them was Mark Perro, who plays in a band now, the, or played in a band, or I think still plays in a band called The Men, who was kind of big for a while. Um, so, and then Chris was on the team, and we just started. I guess either after practice or on the way to meets, we would listen to like different mixtapes and stuff on the bus. I guess the coach would let us put it on. And then we started hearing about shows from some other friends like 
at places like Tramps and Deja One, and it was it was more just that these were the people I had become friends with, and I, I mean, I wasn't necessarily tagging along. I was into bands like Bouncing Souls and H2O and Indecision um, once I heard about them. But I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, earlier hardcore stuff, this stuff was scary as hell, man. It was like you know, it was like everyone likes it, yeah, like talk, yeah. That that was it. It was also, I mean. It was also truly underground at that point and something you really had to kind of know about. I mean, you had stuff like None of the Above Records or like Generation in the City and you had venues and stuff. But I mean, there was no, you know, with no online resources and stuff, it wasn't it wasn't a trendy thing to really be into. Maybe to some people it was, but I, I don't think you were gaining any popularity points by being into it at that time. So I think what, what attracted me to it in that regard um, was kind of the sincerity of the people. You know, if you were into it, there was obviously something about your personality that was drawn to the sincerity of the music, but not only the sincerity of the music, the the DIY ethic of it, you know, if you want to do it, do it yourself. And to me, that was always the most inspiring part. It was the aesthetic of the music. Um, you know, some of it I really liked, some of it wasn't totally my thing. Um, you know, I'm more into like melodic side of hardcore and punk rock. And, but, but the whole, you know, and even looking back at like the, early pay to two stuff and just people kind of who had strong passionate perspectives about things that they were expressing either through zines or through bands i just thought it, it felt legit like i said some of it was borderline frightening to me but it was but there was something also about that that still felt real so it was a uh, it was that scene and i think it it you know it birthed so many friendships it birthed I, in my i mean i still equate so much of the way i approach teaching the way i post approach training so much of my life with that DIY mentality. If you want to do it, just do it. You know, don't wait for anything. Just keep, you know, like I said before, keep it moving. Just keep keep going. So, um, you know, I, I, I apologize. I forget the initial question you asked, but that's, you know, <laughs> yeah, what attracted me. Yeah. So that was it. That was really it. It was, um, and there's also something I think, I think this was more either unconscious or subconscious at the time, but, you know, Long Island, you know, I'm not going to go too deep into like complaining about suburbia or something, but there's a, you know, there's a, there's a complacency in a lot of it. And, and I, don't, I don't, you know, I have three sisters that live there. I'm not, I'm not down talking it, but there was something about hardcore that kind of felt like this underbelly and something that was alive amidst a lot of stuff that felt very routine and very kind of like, you know, follow the rules. Um, and it wasn't. Yeah, there was just something about it that was that was different, um, and and but there was also the other side of it was also like there really was just an amazing there was an immense amount of talent there as well, and it was people who were talented that were really stoked on sharing that talent, you know, sharing you know what they were creating, but not necessarily you know for the sake of putting a big price tag on it or for, for becoming a rock star. So there was this talent plus authenticity. And looking back, it was just a, an amazing groundswell of just a really special thing, a really special, you know, group of bands, group of people, all that stuff. And there's still, you know, bands that come out of it that are very cool. I don't think it was, it's as kind of potent or, you know, kind of creating as much kind of, you know, as many kind of dynamic and interesting bands as were back then. But then again, I'm, you know, 38 saying this like an old man, like, you know what I mean? So, but it, but it, but yeah, you know, there was just, there was, there was something cool about, I don't know. There was just something very cool about the, the whole spirit of what it was at that point in time. And I think it, I don't think it would have been what it was if that weren't really kind of pre-internet boom. I think that was a big part of it too, so. 
So next, I asked Frank, um, you know, more about, um, you know, his take on education and and how or if, you know, uh, his experience going to shows, going to hardcore shows and having a DIY ethos, like how that may have uh, influenced his approach to education. It a hundred percent. If you don't mind going, not, not going off on a tangent, but kind of taking it a step further, it's it's I think it's so ingrained in who I am. So like if, if I read uh, work that my students produce and I, I read something and I think it's beautiful, really well written or something, my first thing is like, we got to get this published somewhere. We got to, you know, and I got to, I, so it wasn't so much just, I have that mentality of like, not just for myself, you know, this idea of let's, let's definitely create something, but then distribution is a piece of that and promoting it yourself and bringing it somewhere is also a piece of that. And I think that's the DIY spirit. And even just this past year, I had one of my students submit a piece that he ended up winning $500 for. Another one is, yeah, another one is publishing a piece for the school textbook that they make a reader for their freshman year students. And a lot of it just came from like, I I think a different mentality of saying to the students kind of, I, I like to try in my own life and in the life of my students to blur the line between us and them. You know, we can we conceptualize ourselves as, you know, I just read stuff that people publish, you know, but why, what, what makes you different from someone who, who goes and does something and publishes it? Now, there might be a certain amount of like, I don't know, brain power or skill that these other people are born with that publish things in, in whatever, the New York Times or whatever, or there might not. And or, you know what I mean? But the thrill is kind of in, in pursuing that and getting other people to pursue that as well. Like, let's see. Let's see what we can make of this. Let's see how far we could take it. And I think so much of that came from seeing bands go from playing VFW halls to playing whatever arenas or Roseland or whatever they played. And I think there's there's something there that never goes away for me. I'm always trying to kind of blur that line between us and them. I just don't, I want less and less of that to exist, you know, for myself and for the people around me. So here I um, uh, ask Frank uh, about his uh, career. Um, you know, years ago, uh, in kind of the music business, um, and uh, you know how that was kind of connected to uh, hardcore as well or DIY as well. And um, yeah, he goes on to explain. It, it it's <laughs> the connection to hardcore is more what took me out of the music business, to be honest with you. <laughs> and and I mean that, and I mean it seriously. And it, it was. Um, it's funny, I actually have a, it's, it's funny you asked that question because I have a, a strange kind of connection to make. I'll make it in a second, but um, the first record label I worked for was a record label called Triple Crown Records. And at the time, they put out this band, I don't know, I think it was a few years after they were putting out like 25 to Life and other hardcore that became, you know, pretty popular. Um, and they were just moving into more of like what was called emo at the time. And it was, you know, I, I had... I got that internship in a really weird way. I used to do, I used to give out flyers for this guy named Christian McKnight and Christian McKnight used to book Deja One, everything. yeah, cleanser. So, and I knew that there was, you know, even my relationship with Christian was kind of funny because there was always, there was even a little bit of us versus them with that stuff. There was like the very DIY hardcore stuff. And then Christian was kind of on the other side, but I always looked at it. He was always a really good guy and he always, um, you know, he, he was always super nice to me whenever I met him and stuff like that. And, and you know, I would, you know, I just, he, he basically opened a lot of doors for me. But he, 
He was happy with the work that I would do for him. And one day he introduced me to the owner of Triple Crown and he told me I could come in and start working. And I was like 19 or 20 working at a record label. I mean, that was the coolest thing in the world as far as I was concerned. And it wasn't even that I was working there. It was like, you know, we have this advertisement that needs to be designed for alternative press. Can you do it? And it's like, wait, something I designed is going to be an alternative press? Like, like, what are you even talking about? Like, what is, you know, that to my brain at that time, that was just the greatest possible opportunity that could be put on the table. Um, and so I worked there for a while and, and Fred is still one of the nicest human beings in the world. That's the owner of Triple Crown. Um, whenever he has like, you know, 10, 15, 20 year anniversary parties for Triple Crown, he still invites me out and we've stayed in touch. Um, but he really, he, he always kind of, he kind of maintained a very ethical DIY stance about things. And he, you know, at one point he got offered to start this division of Warner Brothers and I went there to start it with him when I was about 22 or 23. And it, it was all right. And I think at that point, you know, he, he had a family and all this other stuff. And it was an interesting opportunity. It wasn't for me. I did it with him for a year. And I, I just decided that that kind of corporate level wasn't for me. Um, but, you know, he still completely, you know, was still the nicest person and was just, you know, he never he didn't get swept up in it. He, you know, he was very kind of true to who he was. And, and that always remained a model for me. Um, and I did move around a little bit within the business. I ended up working. I managed two bands for a while. Like I said, I was at Warner Brothers. I, I wrote for magazines and for I photographed for magazines and then worked for um, Ferret Music towards the end. But what was happening? What was happening at that time was CDs were starting to kind of become irrelevant, and nobody knew what to do with nobody knew what to do to sell music anymore. This is before Spotify, before that whole thing started. Yeah. So there was this like black hole that everything was spilling over into and nobody knew what to do. And I think what I started to see in the in the record industry was kind of, and I, I hope I don't get shit for this, but it was almost like a bastardization of something that I loved. And so I started seeing bands, like hardcore bands would all kind of start sounding similar. They'd have the same kind of producers. They were these kind of metalcore producers that in my opinion were kind of churning out a pretty like it, 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 the products, I, I couldn't really, you know, this day, the record started sounding so similar. Like if it was on a certain label, you knew exactly what it was going to sound like, but not, not exactly in the best way. I mean, it's one thing to say like, oh, it's a bridge nine band and it's like a hardcore band like that. That's one thing. But for some of the other labels, they started, I don't know. It just seemed, it seemed too cookie cutter. Some of the stuff that was happening and and it was, it was getting to me. It was kind of eating me up. And I wasn't saying much about it because I think as I was getting older, you know, my whole thing was like, whatever, man, you know, you got to get older. You got to kind of, you know, it's business, you know, this and that. And I just kept rationalizing it. And, and to be blunt, I rationalized it to a point where I ended up in a hospital. I had a, a breakdown and I had to be admitted. It was a bad, a bad situation. And I think I had taken on a lot of responsibility in the business at a young age. And I think while people were, you know, having a little bit, you know, I was still partying and doing all the fun stuff, but I think there was also a certain level of stress that I really didn't know how to process at that age. Um, and one of the things that kind of, that really became the, the thing that made me have to really think twice about what I was doing was like, it was difficult for me to face people like Chris Loverich and Tom Ander. Like I felt like I had kind of sold out a bit and I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I did, I, I did, I, you know, I felt, yeah, and and I think, you know, it's it's wonderful to just be a hundred percent pure and never make that mistake. But I think there's so much to be learned from taking too many steps in the wrong direction. 
Um, and I have nothing bad to say about any of the people I worked with in the business or anything like that. It was just the direction things were heading at that point, and it wasn't for me. It wasn't the place I wanted to be anymore. So, um, you know, once I, I think it was around the time that I quit that the Reformation did a reunion show in that basement, and I was, I was dating this girl, um, this girl uh, named Devon. She, she used to book. Um, She's still a manager in the business, but she used to book uh, Hot Water Music and Elliot and a bunch of other bands and stuff. And, you know, I was just kind of surrounded and, and she's a wonderful human being. And, you know, we still talk from time to time, but I was just surrounded by a lot of the business of everything, even the girl I was dating. And I remember being at that Reformation show and being like, no, 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 no. This is why I got into it. Like, I, I'm not like the, the rest of this money stuff. I, I would have honestly, I would have almost rather just gone and worked on Wall Street because at least that was just money. At least I wasn't trying to turn something I loved into money anymore. And I could, you know, but there's hype, you know, like I think when I started at Warner Brothers, one of the first nights we were there, we went out to dinner with like Lear Cohen and Jay Z and stuff like that. And it's just like, you know, you're, you're impressionable and you get swept up in some stuff. And then, you know, it's something that I, I, I look, I don't look back on anything but fondly. I mean, I look back on it and I'm just like the opportunities I had and the lessons I learned whether at the time they felt good or felt bad they were priceless and I learned a lot of things about myself at a young age and I learned a lot of things about what I'm willing and not willing to do for money so I mean I and that's you know some like I said sometimes you got to cross the line to realize you crossed it and then say you know what I got to step back on the other side of this and kind of realign and, and get back on track so so here um, I went on to uh, ask Frank about you know um, playing music because Frank has been in a number of bands um, so I just asked you know um, yeah how or when did he get started uh, you know actually playing music himself that's a that's a good question I, I, I played in a really really bad band in high school and I love the people the people in the band are like my best friends but it was really bad I'm not even going to go any deeper than that with it but um, that, that was like a bit of a taste of it and then you know, I, I would kind of mess around and it was weird. Back then I would kind of, you know, I would look at, like I said, bands like Strong Point and, or, you know, whoever else, local bands, people we were friends with. And I, I, yeah, Thieves and Assassins, all that stuff. And I would just look at them and say like, you know, so many of these songs I loved and just the vibe I loved and all this. And I, I don't know what it was at that point. I just couldn't, I would write parts to songs and I was like, you know, one day these will become full songs. and. You know, I'll work it out, but a lot of it was riffs, and it wasn't until I started doing a band with, uh, it was Chris, Chris Loveridge, Tom Mander, Vinny, Vinny played drums, and then my friend Andy and Matt played, and we was a band called Sayonara, named after you leaving for Japan, yeah. You know, I started writing these riffs, and so like, you, you've had you've had many conversations with Tom Anderer, and Tom Anderer is a musical connoisseur, so I started writing these riffs, and I remember Tom was like, yeah, that's good. And I was like, all right, well, there's some validation. Like, you know, you could do this or whatever. And then, you know, Chris and Tom decided to sing for it. And these other, you know, Andy and Matt were these other guys I knew from college and super creative and um, and doing all that stuff. What we used to do for Sayonara, it was before Chris and Tom joined as singers. I don't even know where we found the time, but we used to practice four nights a week for three hours of practice, literally 12 hours a week. And that was it. Yeah, we would literally, we'd all do our nine to five. I was at Warner Brothers at the time and Andy was working at a publishing company and Vinny was working with his dad or whatever it was. And we would get beers and we would pr play from like six o'clock to nine o'clock every night almost. It was, it was crazy, but that was, 
just playing songs over and over and playing those riffs. I mean, it was some of it was just straight kind of rote stuff, you know, like rote memorization stuff. But it, it uh, you know, it's how I got how I got some of the chops up and found a little bit of my voice, at least as a guitar player at that point. Um, but uh, yeah, that went on for a few years. Um, I think it kind of slowly people just kind of were like, all right, this isn't my thing. Andy became a, a full time well, not full time, but a professional author. He's written five or six books at this point. Yeah, he's, he's super creative guy matt lambert um is a writer for like hollywood i don't know he's, he's out in la writing tv shows or something like that yeah so he's doing his thing and so it kind of broke up and went in different directions but then we did um we did a band called stay alive um and that was more a little bit more kind of straightforward hardcore um more like in the style of a veil or something like that and i had you know i had i had always kept a journal and i had always written um and you know, I we switched up the roles. I think Chris jumped on bass, Tom played guitar, and Vinny played drums again. And I wrote some lyrics, and we, you know, we didn't we did an Avail song cover, and everyone was like, "All right, you know, this feels good." And that's when we started doing more shows, like like you said, like Thieves and Assassins, and uh, The Agent, and uh, After the Fall, a bunch of other you know Long Island and you know regional bands that we were friends with. Um, but that was a that was kind of a recovery, to be honest. That was me coming out of the music business, just going back to doing music for fun and writing lyrics that were just kind of back in touch with why I got into it in the first place. And then I did that for a while, and then I got some random opportunities to to do work abroad. And I uh, I moved to Ghana for a little while and developed a school over there. And then from Ghana, I moved to Venezuela and started teaching there. And um, it wasn't really possible to continue doing a band full time, so Stay Alive turned into a band called Thirsty. This guy Brian Wallace started singing. He now plays in a band called Perfect World. That's been getting a lot of, um, you know, people have been paying attention to them. They're they're solid, really good hardcore band. And um, that's when I started Correspondence, which you were a part of. I used to play guitar on my front porch in in like the bush in the jungle in Ghana. And, and these kids would come over and ask me to teach them how to play. And, you know, I'd teach them, like, you know, Redemption song and some Bob Marley songs and whatever other stuff. And they'd bring over some drums and we would just play. And I have all these kind of early recordings of songs I wrote with, you know, these kids playing drums or playing other instruments. Yeah. So it started on a porch in, like, rural Africa, correspondence. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I wrote this song called um, Indecision, which I wanted to be a reference to, like, kind of hardcore. But it was this idea of... So we were we were in a we were the third day I was in Africa we had to drive to the coast to do this delivery and um, it was like a six hour ride and then we had to drive six hours back and it was like five of us in like a you know a three and a half seats or something like that in the front of a pickup truck packed in and um, we're driving and um, an 18 wheeler is kind of going through this part of the jungle that we're going through and it flips over onto its side and. And you're like, okay, you know, I'm in the middle of, a, of this rural part of Africa. Now this 18-wheeler just flipped because it was the ground was slippery. It was raining, all this stuff. Um, and then, you know, the whole village kind of comes out, and I'm just kind of like, okay, what happens now? And and the guy that I'm with starts screaming at me to stay in the front seat, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I look different than everybody else there, or you know, so I didn't know what I didn't know what that meant, why he was screaming at me or anything else. And then people start. This guy, his name was Jobo, he's super, I mean, like, fictionally big human being, like, strong guy. Starts screaming at the villagers to start 
sticking two by fours under the tire of our car to wedge our car up this wet hill so that we could get over it and get around the flipped over 18 wheeler. And I'm just kind of, you know, sitting in this car that's being hoisted up by these people and thinking like, well, we could slide backwards and this car could roll, I could get crushed and, and maybe that's the end. And that was the, I came home and I was like, all right, I'm gonna put a few chords together and write this song. And that's when I wrote that song Indecision. <laughs> and that was, that was the beginning of doing that kind of stuff. But the idea behind it was more, I kind of felt that I was going to be traveling for a while and I, I just figured, you know, let me just pick up musicians and band members as I travel. And um, I don't know, I just, I really like the name correspondence. I don't know why, like I, I kind of, you know, I used to write and stuff for magazines and I like that idea of kind of reporting back on something, sharing something from another part of the world with someone. So, um, so yeah, and then with correspondence, that's when, I don't know if you've ever felt this. You sang and, you know, and but I, that's when I literally just felt like, oh, that's how I sing. Or like, that's how, that's how, that's the spot where I'm comfortable. And that's where I like to put my capo. And that's where I like, these are the type of chords I like to play. And it was, a lot of it just came from literally like, you know, free time in these countries where, you know, I was, you know, an outsider, you know, in Venezuela, it was like when I kind of, nobody I knew there spoke English except for my cousin who I lived with. So it was like, all right, when I was kind of oversaturated with speaking Spanish all day, it was like, all right, let me go into this corner here and just put some words on paper in English and put a few chords to it. And, and you know, it just became a bit of a, of a reprieve, a place to kind of decompress. And, and it, you know, started turning into songs for the first time in my life, really just writing full songs and, and being happy with them, you know, being, being excited about them. So. Yeah. So here um, I ask uh, Frank about, you know, how he got into uh, teaching English to speakers of other languages, you know, being becoming an English teacher. Um, and uh, yeah, he explains his story. Yes, I think I think I got home from Venezuela when I was 29. I remember writing a blog post about it and thinking like, oh, I'm about to be 30. Like, Jesus, my life is almost over. Like, you know, again, it's coming to a close, you know what I mean? Like, it's around that time, yeah, I came back and um kind of a bit not lost um i did you know i was teaching at this language school on kind of the east side of the city where i lived at in venezuela it was a city called barquisimeto and that was a little bit more of people who had money um and then i taught in what is called a barrio which is like a lower income neighborhood where i also lived and that was working with um you know really inspiring kids some of these kids were like you know, 16, had already had a kid, would bring the kid to class and would listen to every word I said and just really wanted to do something to to better themselves. And, um, you know, I, I did really feel inspired by that. But, you know, even from that point, coming back, I knew that I wanted to work with people. I was between, you know, social work and, and, uh, and teaching, but um, I still kind of had a feeling of like, you know, there's likely going to be more travel, extended travel in my future. And, um, and I luckily, you know, I think I had friends to come back and crash with. I, 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 I was I was tallying this up the other day. I've moved something like 35 or 36 times in my life or something like that. Yeah. So I've, you know, it was, but it, but it, whatever it was, I've, you know, I've luckily landed on my feet and it's worked out. So yeah, but that was about, yeah, it was about 29 or 30 at that point. And like with teaching, I can't say that I'm like gung ho about, <laughs> you know, you know, teaching everyone English per se. I can't say that's like my thing. I mean, to me, that almost feels like imperialistic to be blunt, like, you know. So you have to kind of approach it with this sense of like, almost like you're teaching 
communication or you're fostering connections more than you are teaching a language. I think that's that's the important part to keep in mind. Um, I was very lucky, yeah, to be to fall into certain opportunities where I could do projects in the classroom, bring in guest speakers, do things that where I got to incorporate other knowledge I had or other experiences. And that started when I came back. I, I literally, I don't even know if people do this anymore, but I, I printed out a paper resume. I walked up to a, uh, yeah, a Kaplan. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I went to a language school and um, I dropped off my resume and I, I think I Googled it. It was on the, oh, I don't even know, 63rd floor of the Empire State Building. And I, I went up there. I was, it was literally, I was at a show at the Gramercy Theater in Gramercy. A friend of mine was on tour and he was there doing merch that night. And I was like, you know what? Let me go just drop off this resume real quick. So, <laughs> so I dropped it off and um, this guy, James Power, called me back. I know his name well because he's the lead guitar player for Correspondence now, which is kind of crazy. Yet. But um, I dropped it off and he called me back and I started teaching there and it was amazing man to be honest that was my first kind of introduction to so much Asian culture and I don't even like to use that blanket term but I met people I met people from Japan I met people from China from Korea uh, from some from Thailand and to be blunt man you know just growing up in suburban Long Island you know even if you did run you know if you were friends with someone at least where I lived in Merrick you know with who had Asian ethnicity, you never really learned much about it. There was probably, you know, one or two kids in your class maybe who had some Asian ethnicity in, in my experience and, and a little bit maybe more in high school, but definitely not as much in grammar school. But this is where I would just, you know, I had these 15 kids in a class. It was an amazing thing. We're teaching on the 63rd floor of the Empire State Building overlooking New York. These people are, you know, you have these young kind of younger students, you know, who are on like their summer break or something. And this is like their three weeks in New York. So there's just kind of high energy in the room of people who are in this new land. You know, they're sharing stuff with you. And I, I started learning more about Japanese culture there. And I met people, some really good friends who had taught in Japan. And I was like, you know what? I mean, I hadn't really thought much about it at that point, but the more you know, I taught people from that culture and learned about it. And, you know, small things start happening. People start like, you know, showing you how to write your name in hiragana or something. And you're like, all right, that's cool. And then they're like, you know, if you ever come visit, you know, here's my here's my number, here's my email address, or maybe it was Facebook at the time, whatever it was. Um, and I was, I was in grad school as I was teaching at Kaplan. I started graduate school and I, uh, I just I knew at some point I would get to some place in Asia, I mean preferably Japan to, to teach. Um, and uh, yeah, that was kind of the Kaplan years was what introduced me to that and that was like 2011 to 13 and I was, like I said, I was in grad school for most of that time. Um, and uh, yeah, it wasn't so long after I graduated that I ended up over there teaching at a, a university so. Yeah. So here I briefly just mentioned that, you know, Frank has, you know, had the uh, opportunity uh, and the, you know, drive to move to so many places and to uh, uproot himself and plant himself in various places uh, all over the world. Um, so, yeah, I asked, you know, uh, what what skills um, did he, you know, learn or what lessons has he learned from that particular uh, experience? That's it. I would say I would say it's too much, but it's taught me some strange skills. I, we just moved, Chris, Karen, and I. I live with Chris Loveridge and his and his girlfriend, and we just moved. And I, I'm getting better and better at being a minimalist. And I think 
it's a really good, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, spiritual practice of like, you know, what are we carrying around? And is it metaphorical? Like, why are we carrying this stuff from place to place? And, and for some people, I think there's different personalities. Certain people are more homebodies. Certain people are, you know, they like the stability of being in a single place. Um, I struggle to be blunt with boredom. I just, you know, I do something for long enough and I'm like, all right, well, there's gotta be other stuff to explore at this point. <laughs> you know, <it's> like... <laughs> so next, uh, I, I asked Frank, you know, um, who in his life inspired him or, you know, has, has influenced him to, you know, travel and, and to teach, you know, to, to give, to connect with, with people uh, all over the world. Um, yeah. And he, he uh, shares. The main, there's two main sources. There's one super main source, but I will say my dad was very, he, he not only had like a, a bit of an entrepreneurial kind of adventure spirit, but he really believed in, reviving Main Street. So my dad was an architect for, he used to design movie theaters, but he also believed that, you know, he kind of saw Main Street in America dying. And the first theater he, he decided to kind of revive was in Hempstead, Long Island. It was called the Calderon. It's an amazing old theater. And he worked with the town to help kind of redevelop Main Street. So I spent, I spent these early years of my life in, in this town, Hempstead. And I remember being there for like you know, premieres of like movies like Passenger 57 or Malcolm X. And, and it was it was such an exciting thing because that was also the time like that was early 90s. And you'd have people walking into the theater and like Tribe Called Quest and Wu-Tang shirts. And it was like it was just such an exciting thing. But I think my dad, he had a bit of this fearlessness, but he but he really loved engaging with people at the same time. You know, he wanted to make business work and he wanted to revive communities in the process. And part of it came he used to design these he was a design, he used to be the architect for United Artists and he used to design these big movie theaters and he was like you know what like I wouldn't want to just drop my kids off at these places and then he started saying like we need to kind of create more community oriented spots so he he uh, he did that and I always admired that kind of fearlessness but also that 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 desire to kind of you know continue to always work on new projects but also to kind of do it with people in mind not just with profit in mind or with you know like you know, just some accomplishment in mind. Um, so that was that always inspired me. But the number one inspiration in my life outside of my two parents, I have an aunt. My aunt Peggy um, is like a fictional human being. She's not she's not real as far as I'm concerned. But she's just so my aunt Peggy. I, I I'll never be able to really get into it. But I think she's worked in something like. 60 countries on the planet trying to stop, you know, child trafficking and sex trafficking. And, and she's a, you know, she has a law degree. She's a nurse practitioner. She's so like, I'll, it's the whole, she's the whole thing. But like, this is the type of stuff that would happen. I would be in, I would be in like my Latin American literature course in college. And I'd be reading something about Nicaragua and it's like safe houses and women, you know, safe houses for women in Nicaragua are named, are called Peggy after Peggy Healy. And this is my aunt. They're safe houses for women in a country are named after my aunt. And I'm like, so I would call her and be like, oh yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't know that. Super humble, down to earth, like super cool. But then and something else happened and I called her about something and she was like, oh, that's when like Fidel used to come. He used to thank us for the work he was doing. I'm like, Fidel, Fidel who? She's like, oh, Fidel Castro. She's like, yeah, he would flirt a lot and stuff. But my aunt worked with the Sandinistas, Daniel Ortega, when they overthrew the government in the 70s. She was a nun back then in Nicaragua. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
but she she was famous she was famous for never wearing the habit she never got into like you know being religious to proselytize she was very into liberation theology and like and what and the, and the positive role i think i mean it really depends on how you look at it but the role i think yeah i think under pope francis it's there's something there to it but i think she was in it for the right reasons um she eventually left she's not a nun anymore but she she as a kid I, even before I really kind of could consciously even understand what she was doing, four or five years old, I would I would gravitate towards her. I would just listen to stories she would tell, and she, you know, you know when certain people just have like they got the fire or they have whatever it is, and it's just, she, that's it, yeah. And she just she has this thing where, you know, she's done this amazing work with. I mean, she right now she's the vice president of Latin America for an organization that houses like forty nine thousand kids a year across the Americas. Like she's, but she'll never. She's just done this work, and and so much of you know, I have lunch with her every every few months, and she just doesn't. And it sounds easier said than done, but she grew up. I mean, to be to put it bluntly, poor as shit. Ten children. My mother's. My you know, they had. It was nine sisters and a brother. My uh, my grandmother was a Catholic school teacher, probably making you know a little more than zero dollars a year. And then my great grand. My uh, my grandfather didn't work much. He would go in and out of working. And um, she just essentially made a decision to not let fear govern her life and not let you know just if there was something she felt, she pursued it. Um, and I and I always looked up to that because I mean I had far more privilege than she did. I had you know two parents. You know my mother worked, my father worked. Um, you know I had more opportunities given to me than she did. Um, but there was always a thing of like, you know, she does this amazing humanitarian work, but she would say to you, she would never encourage you to do the same. It would never be like follow my footsteps. She's like, what do you like? You like painting pictures? Okay, then you should you should paint all the time. You know, you should do that then. Like, it's very like what's in your heart and just stick with it. So I think, I mean, the ethic again, very kind of hardcore DIY, but on this different level with a different approach. And um, um, but that was really it. So she she would just always tell me these stories from around the world, and. Um, I just kind of said to myself, like, I, I, I want to tell these stories one day. You know, I just, <laughs> I want, I want to do the same thing and have these stories to tell, and, um, and I've pursued it. You know, I've I, not, not even that I traveled to tell the stories, but I've just kind of allowed myself to kind of let things appear and take the opportunities as they come. Yeah. So here, um, you know, I switch it up a little bit and I ask Frank about his time, you know, living and uh, teaching. Uh, in Japan, <laughs> you 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 could not have been more welcoming, and and it was such a great it was such a great opportunity to reconnect, but also kind of feel at home in a different way to be able to come out. For me, I was living in Tokyo, but to come out to Guma and to you know do the weekends where we record or where I came out for the the festival in uh, in June and stuff, and it was just like it. It honestly it brings tears to my eyes thinking about dude I have remember we got those three bandanas and that wooden necklace that they that's sitting next to me on my desk I have it right here yeah 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 and I was gonna I signed up for in April I signed up for a Japan run here I was gonna wear all three of them for the run just as a send a picture over which I will do next year whenever this COVID stuff ends but um, now nah, I you know it was Japan in general. Um, to me, it was kind of like the 
you know, if you, it, back in the day, if you knew bands that got to go to like Japan and tour and stuff, I mean, that was like, I mean, there was no, that was it, dude. You're the coolest person that ever lived, and like, that was it. And and Europe was the same thing. And luckily, my friends in this band after the fall, they went over to Europe and. You know, I said like, you know, in exchange, I think I, I learned how to drive stick so I could drive most of it. Some of it was, some of my stick driving was a little bit questionable over there. But, um, but, you know, in exchange, they let me play a few songs every night, either before or after the main band. So I got to tour Europe a few years before, which was amazing. We played 10 shows and it was it was awesome. And then, um, you know, getting to Japan, um, obviously I, the teaching part I was surely excited about. Um but I think part of me was just kind of ready to, there's certain Japanese bands that I'm super into, and part of me was just like ready to explore that world, the world of music in Japan. Um, and the teaching stuff, I felt like my chops were pretty good at that point, though it was a surprise. What I learned about Japan and the age that I taught, uh, predominantly at the university that I initially got hired by, was... Um, you know, this freshman, sophomore year of college, it's kind of like, yo, man, like I just spent 18 years of my life getting getting beat up and, you know, <laughs> yeah, getting tested. And I got, you know, my junior and senior year of college, I'm going to have to go out there and uh, look for jobs. So it's like, yo, man, you're seriously going to make me go home and memorize some grammar or something? It's like, all right, you know. So I, I, had, to, I had to really change my teaching style and it came down to you know, coming up with a lot of the fun activities I did at a place like Kaplan, but then kind of creating a rubric for them. So there was something quantifiable about it. So it took me, it took me a, at least the first kind of eight or nine weeks of the first semester I taught there to really start getting comfortable and feeling like, all right, you know, I'm connecting with the students because that's, you know, obviously the most important part of the, for me, the most important part of the equation. But the other side of that, um, you know, at night, I would go around to different, you know, what they call live houses in Japan, these venues. And I just, I would, I would see these bands that to me, it still kind of had the spirit of a lot of the original hardcore stuff that, that I saw in bands like Nervous Light of Sunday, Enswick, um, uh, Enslave. Um, and a lot of it was just this really, really cool or second arms, really cool melodic hardcore. And I don't know what it was, you know, it's like, and this is probably something you kind of, help, you know, counsel your students with, some information you might share with them, but, you know, a lot of getting involved in, you know, learning a language is kind of finding something about, like an access point within the culture, something you're interested in, and then, and then diving in, and for me, you know, the vocabulary that I remembered in Japanese was, it came from the conversations that I had after like 300 beers at live houses and stuff like that. Like, you know, you'd be there and, you know, when someone told you what the word musician was, for some reason, I just didn't forget it. So that really became the place where I started to gain any sort of confidence, kind of being out in public alone, not just begging, you know, not begging, but not just expecting that people would speak a little bit of English to me. And, and, and wanting to play that and wanting to sit there and really have those conversations. But, um, you know, so school was going on. And then a really weird thing, I think, I think we talked about it while I was there, but randomly, um, my good friend and um, still very good friend and woman that I dated while I was there and after, uh, Aiko knew, knew someone at NYU's campus there and they happened randomly to be starting an entertainment business course at the time. So on the other side of things, we, I ended up working with 
the, the guy who was the head of Warner Brothers in Japan while I was working for Warner Brothers in New York, which was a super coincidence, but I started doing this English language training for people in the entertainment business in Japan. Some of them work for like Sanrio and the other Japanese companies, um, Toho Cinemas. Um, and so it was kind of a weird kind of culmination of knowledge and experience to be able to kind of put that into that class, doing that on at that campus. But the most inspiring part of the time in Japan really came from when I went from beyond just going to shows and knowing people to like gaining the confidence to ask people to play in correspondence. And some of it came from random. I would go to like an open mic. I would in bad Japanese ask someone to borrow their electric guitar to play a song. That person would be like, oh, that was cool, you know, sugoi desu yo. And like, I barely understood those words. And I was, and, and, and another friend of mine would kind of translate more of what they'd say. And he's like, oh, he wants to play a song with you or he wants to play in your band or something. And I was, and I just compiled it. And I think by the time, you know, you eventually played bass and correspondence and recorded it. But at that point, there were like, eight or nine people involved, you know, Jap Japanese, you know, you was you, me, and like seven other Japanese people on stage. It's like, um, but there was something about that process that, that I think was the most special era to me of correspondence because that was, there was true, you know, this term intercultural connection gets thrown around and it, to me, it's just thrown around too much. It gets kind of almost abused, but there was a true like, there was a vibe, there was love, there was adventure, there were all the things that I really wanted to be there. So much so, there were these days when I would just, you know, I'd be taking the subway back home from Manhattan to Brooklyn, and I'd put on the recordings that you did of, you know, arm's length and stuff, and and I would just, I would, there would just be tears streaming down my face on the subway in New York. It was like I was back in those moments, because, I mean, the feeling was so potent, it was such an exciting thing. Um, but more than that, it was like, you know, I met these members of bands who were, they were friends with guys like in the band Envy, a bigger Japanese hardcore band and stuff. And I'm like, that, that was a band I got into maybe 10 years ago. And it's like, not only did I make it here to Japan, but through just friends and through just kind of like, you know, a few degrees of separation, I ended up here with like, on the other side of the world, engaging, creating something with people who, you know, who, you know, I never thought that would have happened with. It just, and, and it was, it was such a weird thing. And I'll be honest, and I say this kind of stuff sparingly because I never want people to feel awkward, but I mean, my grandfather fought in World War II and I, n I never had any, whatever with Japan, but I, I waited until my father passed away to move to Japan because I always felt that he would take it as some sort of offense. Um, and it was only like a year and a half after he passed that I decided to move there. Um, and what I loved about it more than anything was like, it felt like without sounding like too much on a pedestal, but it's, it felt like a real, like, we can change narratives. You know what I mean? Like we can change our story. We can, we can create real bonds with people who at, you know, a generation ago we were taught to be enemies with, you know? And I, and I think that experience was still something it gives me chills to talk about um and you know the role that you played in that recording those songs and you know being a part of the big show that we did and all that kind of stuff was massive and it was so i mean it was such you know even bringing it full circle in this conversation to have it come back to like long island hardcore you know what i mean like to have a piece of that in that whole thing was just like, I mean, you couldn't have written the story better, you know, if it were fictional, you know what I mean? It was just, it was, it was such a great point in time, just a special point in time. 
So yeah, here um, I just briefly mentioned uh, one of the uh, solos that um, a guitar player uh, that played on Frank's uh, EP that uh, we <laughs> mixed and recorded uh, at, at my place. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's a really good guitar player. Oh, dude, yeah, uh, Yuta, yeah, he's. Yeah, I remember, I remember. So we went, we went to the store. We got beers, and we're like drinking beers as we're as we're mixing it and stuff like that. And we listen, we listen back to that guitar solo. Just like, yeah. <laughs> we were like mimicking, like it was like some slash shit. But we were laughing. I remember that night, my stomach hurting. So we like literally just laughing at like. Because that, and, but that's funny because this is why I don't use the term musician. Like when you hear that solo, you're like, man, that's a music. Like that's what musicians do. Like that's like. I also feel like musician is like Joey, who was on the podcast. Like Joey is like, Joey was like came out of the womb ready to rock, dude. He's got the hair. Like he just rips solos. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Yeah, it's a different, it's a different thing. Like I'm trying really hard over here to rock, and it's still just kind of like, all right, Frank, it's cool. Why don't you bring on some other people who rock a little harder and make these songs better? <laughs> so here, um, yeah, I ask about um, what Frank did after he uh, was working in Japan. Uh, he went to Namibia. So yeah, he shares about that. I went to Namibia. Yeah. So I went to Namibia to do work with their Ministry of Education, with UNICEF. Um, I went to grad school with this guy who, um, he actually hosts like Good Morning Namibia, like Good Day New York type thing. So he's, he's a character over there and so I lived with him and stayed with him for a little bit. Um, what had happened though when I got there, uh, he's a great guy, this guy Patrick Sam. He, um, he had just done this insane campaign for UNICEF, literally just every day, different part of the country, just just going around doing this amazing work. And he was kind of burnt. He had asked me to come there the year I went to Japan. That was the really kind of like, that was the year things were kind of booming with that project. So by the time I got there, he was, you know, we, t we talked recently. Uh, he flew back to the States about a last summer and we were talking and he was just like, it didn't end up working out. I was only there for about five or six weeks. Um, and it wasn't so much, it was more just like the vibe was off and it was just, it wasn't, it, it could have worked potentially. I, d I don't know, but there just, there really wasn't kind of the momentum with the project wasn't there anymore. I think funding was actually drying up. Um, the, the experience was quite interesting though. So Namibia is the second least densely populated country on the planet. And it's um, in their capital, they have like less than 400,000 people. So we would be out at night and uh, you know, we'd be out with like the minister of finance for the country. Like it's like, so there was this, there was this level of like access to what was going on that, you know, we, I can't meet the minister of finance for like my neighborhood in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like it's, you know, it's like, it's a different, it's a different vibe. So, I mean, you're talking about a country that has probably less people in it than, you know, than Brooklyn, but it's, um, um, it was really interesting in that regard. I learned a ton from it. I made this amazing friend. Her name is Mary Jean. She has a TEDx talk that you should watch. Uh, Mary Jean Medimbra. Yeah, she's she's amazing, and we became such good friends that I actually I have my license as a minister. I said her, I married her and her husband last summer. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, and um, 
Yeah, and she actually introduced me to this woman from South Sudan who I'm recording with, so I'm going to be doing some recordings with her too soon too for correspondence. Yeah, it should be fun. But, um... Yeah, it was a great experience nonetheless, and MJ became a really good friend of mine. She ended up getting married. She, she got an offer to come here and do her PhD, and uh, so she's been here. She got married. She just had a kid, stuff like that. She's doing work in uh, educational policy and urban environments. She's just, she's an amazing human being, but uh, CNN just did a special on her, actually. She, uh, she had a program called Physically Active Youth in Namibia, and it was... It's, it's literally, you know, it got to a point where she has a few people that have come out of that program or potentially training for the Olympics at this point. But more than that, it was just this after school program that just straight up got kids out of poverty and got them into, you know, you know, got them into doing better in school, which led to better jobs and all this great work. So, I mean, I made a great friend and hopefully we'll be able to do some at least fundraising for that organization. Yeah. So it was in Namibia for a little bit, kind of crash landed back in back in Brooklyn in 2016 and I didn't know what to do so I had this year of teaching at a college level under my belt and I just started emailing my college professors saying like essentially I knew some of them ran kind of were I don't know in charge of ESL at certain colleges and uh, I just started kind of piecemealing together like yeah we'll give you this class and uh, you know I'll give you this class and I wasn't making much money for a while at one point Late 2016, early 2017, I think I had seven jobs I was actually holding down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got super sick. I had two surgeries. I got really, really sick because of just stress and, you know, the chaos of it. Um, but it was around that time that I I, uh, I stopped. The last drink I had was in 2017, New Year's Eve. And I, um, I just decided, you know, it's like I'm working all these jobs, but I got no problem going out and spending a hundred bucks on, you know, buying beers for people and, you know, party. And it's like, well, this is kind of counterproductive. Let me, let me cancel one of my jobs and just not spend money on beers anymore. Like, so did that and started really liking that feeling of not having hangovers and all that stuff. And then, um, John Joseph, the singer of the Chromags posted this book called, uh, Finding Ultra on his Instagram page and I don't I don't know if you've ever had this experience but I saw it and I was like I, I know that I need to read this book and there, the subtitle for the book was uh, Rejecting Middle Age and three other things but it was that idea I was like 36, 37 you know about heading into that middle age thing and I was like rejecting middle age I was like what is that how do you reject middle age like I'm I'll, I'll take one of those <laughs> like let's do so I, I read this book and um, you know it's this guy that was a recovered alcoholic I was never an alcoholic but I just you know I just decided to stop drinking at that point um, and he he was this endurance athlete that would do these super triathlons and I had done triathlons in the past and um, the one thing that I really needed to refine at that point was my diet I was still not really eating the best and so at first I cut out chicken and beef and stuff like that and then about a year or so ago I just went full vegan and you know no substances um, a lot more cooking for myself um, all that kind of stuff and with training now, I'm, I'm training like between bike and running about 110 to 130 miles a week. So it's like, yeah, a big kind of load. And it's, um, I don't know what it got into me. I really don't. It, it, something kind of reignited. And once I started moving again, I was just, I was just kind of like, where has this been? But I think it also came from this idea of, I loved adventuring, obviously, I, you know, lived in different places and done different jobs and stuff, but 
I, I, this sounds almost ridiculous to say, but honestly, like I was getting tired of traveling and like, in like planes and cars and everything else. Part of me was like, I started saying this to myself. It was, I was, and I, I wrote it as a hashtag. But I was like, what if I become the engine? Like, what if my body is the engine? Like, and how far can it take me? And and the farthest it's taken me so far, like we were talking before the podcast, I cycled across Long Island this summer, and and it's weird because it's like. You know, there's days that I even talk about this, man, and I break down, and I don't know why. There's just something that it has moved within me that needed to be moved and for the next phase of evolution of my life or whatever it is. But I love this idea. I mean, I love in almost like this weird kind of like blissful nirvana way, like just spending more time in the sun and like drinking more water, like really simple things, being out on my bike. And some days I... You know, if you're, you know, even a fairly conscious human being, you start realizing like, all right, you know, my, my, my internal body systems aren't working like they used to. And you can, you can kind of give up and say like, okay, whatever, you know, like I'm just gonna, now this phase of my life starts. Or you can say like, for me, it was like, I'm going to go all in on just trying to, you know, be healthy and still feel, to feel vibrant, feel alive. And, um, and it's 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 a challenge, and, and you know the discipline that it takes is tough. But the joy that I feel, like you know, certain nights, like tomorrow night, I'll get on my, I'll teach during the day. I'm taking a class right now. I'm in an MSW program, but I'll get on my bike and like, you know, ride over the Brooklyn Bridge, over to Central Park, and just ride around at dusk. And there's just this weird. I, I mean, I I don't even want to sound like a crazy person here, but like there's like this just a vibe that I feel where I'm just like, I'm so happy to be right here right now. I'm just so happy to be kind of in this moment. And there's days, sometimes I put headphones on while I ride, but there's days that I just like listening to like the sound of the gears of my bike, you know, turning. Like, I don't know. So, I mean, you know, this is, it's it's the beginning, I think, of a new phase. Um, don't, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe combining the music and the athleticism. So, like, next time I come to Japan, the idea is going to be, like, you know what? Let me do a half Ironman and then play a show that night or something like that, you know? So, we'll see We'll see where it takes me. Like I was saying before, I'm thinking about trying to get out to California by bike this summer. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, in, in the meantime, doing this kind of slowly getting through this uh, Master's in Social Work program, um, you know, and combine and and that's even really influencing my teaching being more em- empathetic toward, towards my students and understanding where they're coming from more and understanding some of the psychological emotional you know the struggles that come along with I teach at a public university so it's you know a decent amount of the students are kind of lower socioeconomic status they deal with different things and I think being you know, like I, I joked about it in the, the recent thing I wrote. I'm like a type A personality in recovery. I'm trying to get away from that stuff because it's because it's really like you're, you're only fighting yourself. You're only competing with yourself at the end of the day. So trying in my mind to kind of lessen that competitive element, even the way I approach work, but even the way I approach training. But um, but even, you know, at a job, I always wanted to do it the best I could. It's like, well, that's fine. It's good to be ambitious and all that. But like redefine what best means you know what i mean redefine what that means and it's not you know i'm not teaching to a standardized test i'm not teaching to you know i I get have the freedom to create the curriculum i want and it's like you know if i slow things down a little bit to make sure people really get what i'm teaching who is that going to hurt no one you know what i mean so i think um you know learning these lessons to to kind of slow down and um 
just make sure that make sure that the feeling the vibe that the heart is in the right place all the while and and again to never you know to hopefully not cross that line that the ego will sometimes take you across the stuff that kind of happened with the music business and to just stay mindful of that as i move forward and, and just try to kind of live from the heart as much as possible so here uh, i ask frank if there's uh any advice or pointers uh that he would give somebody uh, who is looking to, uh, you know, get active and and uh, get their fitness on point. Yeah, we <laughs> just, I was signed up for the Brooklyn Half and then COVID happened. So I went out and just, I did it on my own. Just, I had never, I had never done that distance yet, but we did that. But, but yeah, I mean, all the distances and all that stuff doesn't matter. I would say if any advice I would give to people, man, like I, it's in that medium post too. When I say, when, when I say that I, I used to, you know, I've dealt with mental health issues over the course of my life. And when I got back into exercising, it triggered a lot of them. And um, I mean, there was literally a hill. It's like a quarter mile long. It's not even huge or anything. It's big, but it's not huge. I couldn't get up it without just straight going into almost panic attacks. And that was about a, a year and a half ago. So, I mean, I think the big thing is like, sometimes we take those steps and we feel stupid. And there were days in Japan that I felt stupid. What am I doing here teaching at this school? Like, I have no right to be here. I have, what am I doing? I remember getting off the plane in Venezuela and it's like, when are you gonna grow up? Like, what are you doing here? And there's, there's the intuition. I, I haven't listened to the episode yet, but one of the people, the title for one of your episodes with uh, one of your friends was, uh, don't think so much, just feel. Like, I, I, I think that intuition is something like that, that feeling is something we have to follow um, and it doesn't always it's not always like it works out magically there's usually a lot of like wood to chop and carry and you know and, and a lot of and you did it man like I mean your Japanese is incredible I'm sure not all of that was a comfortable ride you know like you you know it's and I, I have nothing but admiration and the you know the admiration for the way that you've adapted to life there and walk you know when we got to celebrate by carrying that shrine around in your town man yeah and everybody everybody listening to this should know it's like you know i've i've seen a lot of people in japan get jaded bitter blah 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 i have never seen the complete opposite like i see it with you everyone in that town loved you like they were they were so you know they saw you as just a part of the community and but you but you made a very conscious choice to to make all the efforts to become a part of that community you know you learn the language and you you really respected the process i think and here i ask if frank can speak any other languages other than english and if so if you could share yeah my my spanish is definitely i would say my second language i can I can hold conversations and translate in Spanish, um, a little bit of Japanese and a little bit of Italian as well. The the term, the translation of the of the phrase "don't worry." I love the way you say it in Spanish because the literal the literal definition is so is so beautiful. Um, no te preocupe, so don't preoccupy your mind. And when you when you think about what worrying really is, we worry about the future. We worry about this. Like if so, don't worry. Kind of be right here in the moment. Pay attention to what's happening immediately in front of you. That phrase I say it to myself all the time when I start getting too stressed about what's going to happen or this or that. It's just like do not do not preoccupy your mind with anything but what's right in front of you right now. So I, it's one thing that I I always talk with my Spanish speaking students with that. I, I I think it's just yeah something that. It's almost like a mantra that I keep in mind. Next, Frank shares his favorite phrases in Japanese and Italian. Maybe maybe not, this is like my top 
two or my top three phrases, Otsukare Samadeshita. I, I, I love that idea of essentially thanking someone for like giving their energy to the day. Like it means what? It translates to what? You must be tired or something like that. But, but it's more of like a, you bow when you say Otsukare Samadeshita and you're kind of saying like you must be tired for kind of giving so much of yourself to what you do. And it's like, what a beautiful concept. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a nice, like, thing to acknowledge, right? We're all giving ourselves to the day. We're all doing our job. We're all, like, you know, putting some effort into it. Like, it's nice to acknowledge that. Why not? I mean, Italians are ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's a ridiculous, like, it's half of my ethnicity, but in my heritage. But, um, Italian, I don't know. They would always say, Kekatsofai is like the literal translation is like what a fuck you make or something like that. But it's like but Kekatsofai is like Italians like you're you're being ridiculous. Why you gotta be ridiculous like this? <laughs> yeah. And here I just uh yeah, just thank Frank for being a hero that I call by their first name. That means that means that means uh, more than I can express, man. It's really kind and the feeling is mutual, bro. Still paying the